0: Knowing our past equips our present and shapes our future. It's so important that we know our past. Where have we come from? What are the lessons of those who have run the race before us, chasing after Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? What lessons can we learn from their life? And uh, if we fail to do that work, then we will indeed repeat the mistakes that they made. And uh, The benefit of ours is the equipping of the present, but also the shaping of those who would follow our example, right? So think of this. We find our balance as we understand history. In fact, our nation right now is making some horrific mistakes in in some part because of our lack of understanding of our own story, our own history, our own founding. And so it's beneficial to us to go back and learn these things. We need balance. We need to know how to live in the present, and we learn a lot through history. Now, church history itself does not come on par with the work or revelation of God here, but it, in connection with that revelation, can be quite powerful, a shaper of our faith. And so, it was 503 years ago that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the castle door at Wittenberg. His protests against the Roman Catholic Church. He nailed these series of, of, of uh, grievances and protests against the corruption of the Catholic Church, uh, against the, um, the massive and rampant corruption of selling of indulgences to gather in all kinds of money to build big churches off of lies and deceit, the fabrication of truths that are not even in the Bible then taught as doctrine. And he nailed these 95 theses, and that's what we stand in today. We are Protestant. We are protesters. We are, as John MacArthur said, the original protesters. We've been protesting for 503 years. It's nothing new for us. We protest toward the Scriptures. That is our goal. That is our our foundation, our authority in this life. And so one of the things that happened as that, that hammer pounded those uh, protests into that that uh, bulletin board. Uh, it was really the shot heard round the world. It started a movement of reformation, and that continues, friends, to this day. Always reforming is our mantra. Always reforming to what? To be faithful to the word of God, to the mission He's given us, to the doctrines He's unfolded in His Word. Coming out of the Reformation are what we refer to as the five solas of the Reformation these are the doctrines of the scripture and specific to salvation but also beyond that so that we understand from scripture we are saved sola gratia in latin by grace alone not by any deservedness of our own we don't come to the equation of salvation with any merit foreseen or actual in our hands we we have nothing in our hands i bring only to the cross i cling right We are saved by grace alone, and sola fide, through faith alone. Not not works of righteousness added to it, not all of these things that we do to perform for our salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that is in Christ alone, solus Christus. He's the only Savior. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ alone. And we are saved to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. If there was a a banner over your life, believer, that's the fitting banner. In fact, I'm going to build a table with Ethan and on the table we're going to uh, inlay these Latin words. Soli Deo Gloria. That is my longing to live in that way. To His glory alone. He deserves all the praise, all the glory. We we find these things in Scripture, and the foundation of our lives is the authority of Scripture, sola scriptura. We don't depend upon the Pope. We don't depend upon creeds or councils. The authority that we live on is rooted in the Word of God alone. That is the the truth with a capital T that we seek to live by. It's the gathering point of unity for God's church. So, we come this morning uh, to kind of a, a step in a process. Years ago, I purposed to preach a one biography sermon a year until I turned 70. We're 10 years in today, 10 years. And uh, I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm like, we've got I got a lot of work to do yet. So now here's the thing. If you are in glory before we finish this, this, this plan, it's okay because we can just finish it when we all get there. Or we'll just have these guys finish it for us. We'll look them up. Say, hey, tell us a story. I think it'll be a wonderful thing talking really about what I preached on last week. We have so much to discover as we walk the new earth with all of these renowned uh, forerunners of our faith. Shapers, missionaries, theologians, writers, pastors, evangelists, all in this list. I'm going to conclude My final Reformation uh, biography sermon on my own father in uh, 2046, I believe, and he will be most likely with the Lord at that point. So actually today is the day that he is uh, stepping back from being the senior pastor at the church. My entire life he's been a preaching pastor and uh, today is a, a big day of transition for them. Grateful for God's grace in their lives. Let's get to know Jonathan Edwards. Who, who here has heard of Jonathan Edwards already? Okay, now this is great. A lot of times on Reformation Sunday, when I ask that, it's a lot more sparse. So I'm grateful for the history books, which I heard even fairly recently still include a portion on the Great Awakening and its uh, significance in history. For homeschoolers, this is required, right? Required reading, absolutely. He was a pastor, He was indeed a missionary, but he is best known as the theologian of the Great Awakening. Uh, There was something unique that God accomplished in this special period of time, and his preaching, but also his, his theological expressions, God used in a powerful way to fuel the fire of the Great Awakening. I titled my sermon this morning, Resolved, Jonathan Edwards Resolved, and that is one of the things that I have benefited from Edwards in in my own life, and I I pray that it will benefit us all today. Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 8 is where I'd like to uh, begin, and then I'll tell the story of Edwards, and we'll come back to this passage at the end. We read this in Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith and then without any pause with almost in the same breath he moves right into Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever what's the connection there the connection is the same Jesus that they followed that they worshiped that they depended upon and and held to with all their faith That's the same Jesus we serve today. The same gospel, the same hope, the same strength that they drew from him, we can draw from him too. And so too, we can imitate their faith and in the race that they ran as we seek to run a faithful race of our own. So let's do that as we get to know Jonathan Edwards. Genius with a passion. He was truly a genius, a a child prodigy um, from an early age. He was born in 1703, so remember this, the pre-Revolutionary uh, War, this is, this is colonies, we're in uh, um, New England, uh, Windsor, Connecticut, born into a strong Christian family. His father was Reverend Timothy Edwards, his grandfather on his mother's side was Reverend Solomon Stoddard, both men very faithful in the pulpit. In fact, uh, Solomon Stoddard would pastor at the same church for 60 years. And his father would pastor at the same church for, I think, 52 years. So marathon-running pastors, the the kinds of guys that I would long to to have that kind of legacy with here at this church. uh, Long-term, marathon-like shepherding work in a local congregation. It benefited him greatly as he grew. Uh, His mother, as well, was tremendously helpful in, in raising him up in the Word, Um, He was the only boy among 10 sisters, okay? You guys think of that, you you young guys. 10 sisters! He was number five in the family, uh, birth-wise. All of his sisters were over six feet tall. This is back in the day. I mean, can you imagine? This family stood out when they walked in the room. (laughs) Edwards was brilliant. A number of his his sisters stood out as well, just academically, just genius-level intelligence flowed in this family. Um, They, uh, in fact, some of the brilliance you see in Edwards shows up even at age 11. He had a passion for science, and he would study, but on a level different than other 11-year-olds of his day, right? When I was 11, I was working on the next Transformer, right, or or Lego set. Jonathan Edwards was writing an essay for a scientific-level journal titled the flying spider in which he detailed the ballooning uh, techniques of spiders that spin a web to to float out in the air and then they basically parachute on the wind to transport from one place to another and it was so regarded his academic work his writing was so perfected that it was held in esteem with the scientific journals of his day at age 11 he did this incredible he was highly skilled in languages from early on. His, actually, his older sisters helped to tutor him in Latin early in his life, and then he added Greek and Hebrew to it. He entered Yale just before turning 13. Okay, I said Yale at age 12. I mean, can you even imagine this? He graduated at the head of his class and delivered the valedictory address, went on to receive his master's degree He studied in divinity what we would refer to as theology. And uh, so he was a genius in all of these ways. Now, young man resolved. Young man resolved. Something very significant happened to him as he studied. He was around 17 years old. It was uh, the year 1720. Edwards was powerfully saved. Head and heart came together in his love for Christ. So just think about this. He grew up in a Christian home. He had heard the gospel 1,000, 10,000 times. Just imagine how much he knew with his mind. He had studied theology. He had this incredible genius level academic understanding. But until the age of 17, he was spiritually lifeless. Spiritually void. The delight he found in, in, in the glory of God was an academic delight, but it had not moved to his heart at the level of worship and joy and embrace. It's an amazing conversion story. He's reading in First Timothy about the majesty of God, the, the glory of God. And it was as he read those verses that the Holy Spirit threw the switch in his soul and he, all of a sudden, just was enraptured with the glory of God, in love with Christ, in a completely new way than he had ever experienced before. And he would point to that as the day that he was saved, the day that God saved him from his sins. He found a great and new joy in his study of God's Word, and as he studied creation, he had just an eye for science. It's interesting to note as well... There were many Puritans at this time that feared the the study of science. This is pre-enlightenment, just on the very edge. So there's this enlightenment thinking that is starting to move toward deism in a big way. And Edwards was just drawn to creation, but not as a deist, but as a theist. As one who believed that God was active and involved, intricately designing and glorifying himself in all that he had made. And so that continued through his life. He just loved to see the glory of God in all the things that he had made. Now three years after his conversion, he was preparing to enter into the, the workforce to, to kind of tackle life. He sat down and he wrote 70 resolutions, 70 resolutions. Benjamin Franklin probably modeled this a bit. He had fewer than 70, though. Edwards wrote these resolutions resolutions to chart the course for a purposeful and holy life. Here's a little glimpse of these resolutions. Number four, he writes, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. He wanted to live all of his life in everything that he did, every moment of his life to the glory of God. Purpose to do it. And then what he would do is, in other resolutions is he would assess, constantly assess, did I do today the accomplishment of number four? Where did I fail? And where I failed, confess it, repent of it, and seek tomorrow to improve upon it. It's purposeful to the glory of God. Number five, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it to the most profitable way I possibly can. It's fascinating to me to think how significant this is. The man would only live to age 54. I'll say more of that in a little bit. But if he had not lived this way, the impact of his life would have been far less. We would not have this abundant just... Overflow of, of work and material and preaching and teaching. He captured the moment and lived it and made the most profitable moment he could out of each one. And then number six is my favorite of the 70. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. He was not a man who wanted life to live him. He wanted to say, Lord, for your glory, for my joy, let's do this. Come on. And he would go into life like that. It was aggressive. Make the most of it. Each day counts. No throwaways. Hmm. A man resolved, a young man, a 20-year-old man with this kind of purpose and commitment. There are all kinds of categories these resolutions can fall into. There's resolutions of his commitment to holiness and to fight and kill sin in his life. There's resolutions of his commitment to um, human embetterment. He wanted to, to find ways to help with human flourishing so that he could be a servant to bless those around him. Certainly to bless this new nation that was in the process of coming together. And uh, just so many categories. Heaven, he wrote all kinds of things about heaven. Now, in 1724, when he graduated at Yale, they immediately said, please teach here, don't leave, you child prodigy. And they hired him on. He worked there for two years. And then in 1727, he was hired by his uh, grandfather-in-law to be an associate pastor in the prominent church, Northampton Massachusetts. Now, um, at this point, uh, Reverend Solomon Stoddard had preached there for 58 years. He would go on two more years, 60 years in the same church. Just a little heads up here, his grandfather was referred to as the Pope of the Connecticut River Valley, okay? It's not a good thing. Part of what happened is the longer he stayed at this church, the, the more willing he was to to compromise, some of the most important things to not compromise. And the church got larger and larger and more influential, yes, and so did he, but it caused problems down the road. And this is something I want to have on your radar, because as Edwards comes in, he comes into it to a certain degree of compromise within this church. He comes in as an associate pastor, really a scholar, theologian, pastor. His His assignment was study, write, teach, and preach. And uh, so he did, faithfully, for a couple years. Now, before we go any farther, I want to also mention his uncommon union to his wife, Sarah. God blessed Jonathan Edwards greatly in giving him an incredible woman of God. Her name uh, was Sarah Pierpoint. He married her in 1727 he married her when she was 17, and uh, she proved to be an incredible woman of God that he had known and been inspired by since she was only 13 years old. Now, just think, child prodigy meets another just incredibly mature. She's described, even at 13, as a mature young lady who was uh, committed to prayer. And as she grew, his uh, delight in her grew, and at age 17, he married her. She proved to be a resilient wife and mother. Uh, The two of them had 11 children together, and uh, she did the lion's share of work in raising those 11 kids. Uh, Jonathan studied long hours, and uh, there's actually quite a bit of material that you can read about Sarah Edwards and the work that she did to disciple her children, uh, to be consistent even with the Lord in her own time of prayer and meditation on the word, with God, despite the 11 kids and the chaos running all around the home, Uh, so lots to learn there, uh, moms. A study of his descendants, of their descendants, found this, think of this, 300 pastors, missionaries, or theological professors, 120 college professors, 110 lawyers, 60 doctors, 60 authors, 30 judges, 14 university presidents, that's mind-blowing right there, 80 holders of major public office, including three mayors, three governors, three senators, and one vice president. Now, uh, what do you call it? Trivia. Trivia question. Who was the vice president? Does anybody remember this? Have you seen um, Hamilton? Okay. His grandson, Aaron Burr, Jr., was the second vice president of the United States of America, the one who dueled it out with Hamilton. That was a grandson of Jonathan Edwards. Just didn't know that. I completely forgot that. That's a connection that's that's fascinating. So tracing back to these descendants, think of the echo. Think of the legacy and the impact they had, even on our nation, as it were, just thinking about our nation as a whole, the Edwards family had an incredible impact there. Now, gospel preaching and the winds of awakening. Gospel preaching and the winds of awakening. In 1729, Edwards was brought on to be the sole pastor at Northampton. Uh, It had a population of 2,000 people in the town. 600 of those people were members at this church. This was a very large and influential church. In fact, it was the second most influential church in all of New England. So think of this young pastor coming in. This is a tough assignment. It's a tough assignment. And by the way, he's following the Pope, (laughs) the Pope of the Connecticut River Valley, who when he spoke, people listened, right? His way was the way. And here comes Edwards. It's a tough assignment. And he worked hard at this. One of the things that he was renowned for in this was what some have referred to as God-entranced preaching, heart and mind. God-entranced preaching to the heart and mind. When he preached his sermons, he sought to captivate the people with the glory of God. He sought to center upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling them to repentance and faith. And he sought to root them deeply in the theology of the Word. It's an interesting thing to listen to his sermons. We have all kinds of recorded sermons, not recorded, but written, uh, documented sermons of his, as well as his books. And uh, he was an amazing preacher. In 1734 to 1735, God unleashed a powerful revival within his church Uh, and community there. It started with the young people. So young people, listen up, right? Sometimes God does amazing things and he starts that work in your lives. It happened when one of the young people in the church died and they had a funeral service for that and Edwards preached at that funeral and what he preached came and was landed in the hearts and lives of those that heard it in such a powerful way that about 300 people We're saved. It's an incredible thing that God does. Now, God doesn't always work this way. You know, Jesus said the wind blows where it will. So too it is with the Holy Spirit. You can't put a thermostat on the Holy Spirit and do six things and then push the button and expect that to happen. Uh, It is a unique and beautiful expression of God, and he so purposed to accomplish a massive revival in this little town as he preached. 1740, uh, he found that that was just the beginning because the Great Awakening began to spread through the colonies. George Whitfield, who I did a biography sermon on a few years ago, he came from England and he preached at Edwards Church in a powerful message. And uh, he was probably the most renowned preacher of the uh, the Great Awakening. But the theologian work, that was to Edwards. Edwards would, would travel preaching through the colonies And lots of people were saved in this work. It's in this time that Edwards preached the most famous sermon ever preached in the United States of America. The title of the sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, when you think about that sermon, what baggage has collected over the years? That that sermon was initially received with, in, with awe and wonder, but history has not been kind to this sermon. It has looked upon it as judgmental and harsh and fear-mongering and hellfire and brimstone. It's looked upon Edwards as mean-spirited almost. And, and we, we live in such a day that's so overly sensitive. Friends, this sermon was loving. It was a pleading with his people to repent, to be saved, to, to escape the fires of hell and enter into the glories of heaven through Jesus Christ. I listened again to this sermon. I've got it on uh, audio um, from Max McLean. He reads it. So even though Max McLean is British, I try to hear Edwards, the American, preaching this just epic sermon. It's a wonderful sermon. What's amazing about this sermon is when Edwards preached it to his own congregation, it had little effect. But then, this is the way the Lord chooses to work sometimes. He goes down and he preached in another town the same sermon and everything just breaks loose. It it, it was said at one point he couldn't even finish the sermon because there were people pleading, what shall we do to be saved right now? Please tell us. How are we to escape the fires of hell? God used it in a powerful way. Friends, we need to return to the kind of preaching that speaks about the dangers and the horrors of eternal punishment under the wrath of God. Our generation is lacking there. And we benefit, we love those who are headed that way. By drawing out the realities, the horrors of that place, and the hope of Christ for all who would turn to Him and escape the wrath that is coming. Out of a population of 300,000 in New England at this time, it's estimated that between 25,000 and 50,000 people came to Christ during this Great Awakening. It was a, a special, special time in our nation's history. In fact, a lot of those who came over and immigrated, that generation, they were strong in their faith, but their children came up and there was all kinds of problems and there was all kinds of behavior, uh, sinful practices among that generation that had come up. And so a lot of what God was doing was awakening them to the gospel. Now, a theologian of the heart sometimes when you think of a theologian you think this guy's really like heady he's intellectual he's super smart and sometimes it's very difficult for someone who's wired that way to communicate to just normal people like us right like just talk to me on a normal use english just regular talk edwards was that guy he could do that he could operate at a high level of genius and then he would preach a sermon that would be right to your heart, not just an academic exercise. In 1746, he wrote a response when he was accused of over-emotionalizing things. Edwards wrote The Religious Affections. I love this book. I remember going through Bible classes and having this book as a signed reading. In the Puritan movement, which spanned hundreds of years there, you had this tendency toward truth with the mind and piety that was very uh calm and 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 collected and and here's what happened is it became almost a restraint of joy and Edwards comes in here and says listen when God sets people free from their sins they are overjoyed and they're not just going to sit there across their legs and say hmm hmm right there is, like, jumping for joy. I'm free. I'm forgiven in Christ. And that should be the case. It's like going to the Grand Canyon and staring at the, the glories of God and all His handiwork there and being like, yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty impressive. That's amazing. You know what I mean? We are wired to respond with more than just intellectual assent. When we see the most glorious realities Of the universe in the glory of God, we should respond with joy, overflowing joy. The religious affections. How do you balance the stoicism with what, in some cases, was over-emotionalism? You don't want either one of those. You want God-honoring responses. So he said this, true religion, in great part, consists in holy affections or emotions. I love how he said it this way. I've used this quote so many times. I just absolutely love his wording here. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, okay? So we see it, we understand it, we can conceive of it in our minds, but by its being rejoiced in. His goal is not just that we see it, but that we love what we see and rejoice in it. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. You see the difference there? God wants us to praise Him. He wants us to glorify Him, to to adore Him, not just to know about Him, to see Him. And I would say this, that when we see God for who He is, this is not hard this is the response. If you can go to a Seahawks game, I mean, you can't right now, I'm sorry, but before this crazy year unleashed, we could go to the Seahawks game and we would score a touchdown and what would happen in the stands? Elation. Hey, we scored a touchdown. <laughs> that's good, right? I don't see that happening at the Seahawks game. That's, that's a sport compared to the glory of God. Friends, consider. It's in us. Release that joy. Display that joy. Edwards was so good for this time period. He was a corrective agent used by God to help the Puritans enjoy God, not just know Him. He said in his first resolution, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my good. You see what he said? Those are not at odds. Those two realities, my good, my joy, my delight, and God's glory are not competing with one another. They're one and the same. One and the same. Hmm. The more Edwards lived for and loved God's glory, the more happy and satisfied, he became. And then he wrote about it. He, 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 it's almost like he diagnosed this in Christians. This is a good thing. You want this. You want to be ruthlessly committed to the pursuit of your joy in God. So he said it this way. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven and fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. So add this to my sermon from last week, right? that All of what we said last week, add this to it. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams God is the ocean. What is glorious about this earth is God. What is glorious about heaven when we're with Him is God. What will be glorious about the new heavens and new earth, ultimately, it all points to Him. It's God. Edwards knew this and relished it. Loved it. Now, lest we think Things went smoothly or easily for this poor man. Confrontation takes place. He has to confront rampant compromise within his church, and after a number of years, it builds, and he draws a line in the sand in 1750. Incredibly, after pastoring there for 23 years, seeking, I would say, to slowly, carefully, lovingly, gently turn the ship, kind of turn the tide from some of these areas of compromise that his grandfather had initiated He realized it was time to draw a line in the sand, and he did. And amazingly, Jonathan Edwards was fired by his own church. By a vote of 90%. (laughs) These people, oh, what a regretful decision this was. Why would they do this? Well, uh, Reverend Stoddard had engaged what is referred to as the halfway covenant. He had brought people into membership who were not believers. He had opened the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, to all people, not reserved it just for believers. The witness of the table is watered down and lost. The distinction of the church is completely diluted when they did this. One of the reasons 90% of the congregation voted to fire him is because a high percentage of them probably weren't even saved. Church was social. Church was status. Church was tradition. Church was, we do what Stoddard did. Who do you think you are telling us we can't take communion just because we don't bow to Christ as Savior and Lord. His decision was absolutely right. It was the right decision to make. His decision actually served, even though he lost his job, it served to correct so much of the corruption and practice of the church in our country. It was important, but it took courage. It took a man of conviction to say, enough already. This has to change. And they fired him for it. Eleven kids and a wife. What do you do? (laughs) Where do you go? Missionary to the marginalized. The final chapter of Edward's life. He became a missionary. Now, a little backstory here. Three years before he was fired, uh, a man by the name of David Brainerd, you may have heard of him in church history, he's on the list. We'll get to him soon. He was a renowned missionary to the Native Americans. In this country, he came to stay with the Edwards because he had come down with tuberculosis. And as the Edwards family lovingly cared for him, in fact, one of his daughters fell in love with David Brainerd, and as she especially was caring for him, she got tuberculosis as well, and they both died. Edwards During this time, he got to know Brainerd incredibly well. He wrote a biography of his life and published his journal, and that served to be the the, the fuel of a modern missions movement like the country had not seen, like the colonies had never known. In fact, William Carey points back to that journal, that publishing of of, of David Brainerd's journal as the the fire that helped move him to the mission field. Hmm. So... 1751 after turning down multiple prestigious job offers from various places that were impressed with Owen or with uh, with Edwards he decided to become a missionary he moved his family out to a frontier mission station at Stockbridge and began to bring the gospel to the Native American tribes there now just think of uh, the timing of this this is like there is all kinds of conflict happening here This is before the Revolutionary War. The the Native American tribes, in many cases, are not at peace. There's hostility happening, and it will only increase in the in the generations to come. He goes to bring the gospel to them. He had the foresight to see a need for an unreached people group met. You could say the ministry was uh, fruitful, yet it was a modest modest ministry. It it wasn't flashy. It wasn't impressive. For for the, the most renowned theologian of America to be on the frontier mission field to the Native Americans was surprising to many. In fact, many saw it as a waste. He was squandering the gifts he was given, but he didn't see it that way at all. In fact, during this time, God accomplished some of the most important works that Edwards would ever write. Original sin. He wrote during this time, Uh, the end for which God created the world, which is a treatise on on the the glory of God and His purpose and design in all that He does. And he wrote the book, The Freedom of the Will, which is tremendously shaping of our understanding of the doctrine of salvation. How does God save people? What is the nature of our salvation? Let me give you a glimpse into this theology. Absolutely love it. R.C. Sproul called the freedom of the will by Jonathan Edwards the most important theological work ever published in America. That's high praise from a theologian. Edwards spectacularly dissected the function and work of our decision-making and the will. And this is how he said it. These are my words. Our will is free to do what we want most to do at the moment of choice. So think of this: you have never made a decision in your life, ultimately, that you did not want to do. Even under the pressure or fear of this or that, you chose to do something, either to avoid that or because you wanted this. Or you know, the, ultimately, your your will is informed by your desire sinners, those who are apart from Christ, we are instinctually enslaved by sin at the level then of desire. That's why we, left to ourselves, we, we sin just because we want, that's what we want to do most. It's in us. It's instinctual. And we freely choose sin, which is why it's perfectly just and righteous for God to punish sinners in hell forever for their willful volitional, desiring, and choosing of sin and rebellion against Him. Slavery to sin, therefore, is a slavery that meets us at the level of desire. We don't want God. We don't want life. We don't want light. John three sixteen. keep reading on to the end of the chapter. The light has come. We love darkness. So what is then salvation? Salvation is God's sovereign and miraculous through His Spirit changing of our desire that we may see, love, and embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. That's how He saves. Did you choose Him? You did, absolutely. But how? How? Because He set you free. He changed your heart. We pray this all the time. Lord, change their heart. Stir in them, open their eyes, cause them. You see, that? that's right kind of prayers. And this is what Edwards just built out in a spectacular work titled The Freedom of the Will. He established God as absolutely sovereign over all things. And whatever will we have operates within His freedom and His sovereignty. What a beautiful gift it is. still echoes and shapes to this day. Now, 1758, Edwards was made president of Princeton College. His son, Aaron Burr Sr., uh, son-in-law, I should say, was the president there and died. And so Edwards felt, as much as he really didn't want to do this, he felt like he should. And so he was established as the president of Princeton College. And six weeks later, he decided to get the inoculation against smallpox Uh, He wanted to show everybody that it was safe. The problem is is that he died as a result. He contracted smallpox. Uh, His daughter Esther also had the same problem. She died. It was a horrific moment for the family. Sarah Edwards wrote how painful it was to lose two family members just like that. But she said, we trust the Lord. We cling to Him. We cover our mouth, and we honor him as Lord. Great faith on display. The man was only 54 years old, but the man, Jonathan Edwards, left us a life that is worth imitating. Let's go back to our text in Hebrews. Remember your leaders, Christians, believers. Remember them. This is what we're doing today, right? That, that, that takes work. To remember. That means you need to know your past. Know those who have gone before those who spoke to you the word of god now consider the outcome of their way of life where are they well jonathan edwards is without a doubt with the lord he is the one who ran through the tape persevered to the end consider the outcome of their way of life how did he live what did he treasure what did he esteem and imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. This is, this is wonderful for us. And then that natural just flow right into our focus as we run. So Hebrews 11 to Hebrews 12, right? Therefore, since we have this, such a great cloud of witnesses as we looked at last week, let us run the race with endurance that's set before us or marked out by God, sovereignly set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus He's the focus of our race as we run. And, by the way, friends, He's the same. We serve the same King as Jonathan Edwards did. We serve the same purpose and mission in our lives. solely Deo Gloria. Every moment of every day. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. May the generations that follow our lead benefit from the way we have lived as we have benefited from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, Don Whitney writes, has been called the most brilliant mind ever produced in America, and that's widely agreed upon, Uh, beyond just those who are Christians in the Christian circles. But Edwards didn't rest on his brilliance alone. He didn't simply say, hey, I got it figured out, I'm smart. He disciplined himself Godliness. He knew his sin. He knew his weakness. He knew his need. And he held to Christ with all his tenacity and might. Resolved to live for him. Number 28 of his resolutions. Listen to this. Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. He wanted to be a man of the good book such that he could see and and trace growth in his life. Not just in his mind, not to know more, yes to know more, but to love God more. To be more holy and pure and obedient and joy-filled in this life. Let's imitate that. Let's be kind of that kind of people. People of the good book who live there stand upon the pages of those scriptures as the foundation of our life resolution number 37 this is excellent resolve to inquire every night as i am going to bed wherein i have been negligent what sin i have committed and wherein i have denied myself also at the end of every week and month and year this is great it's a good practice to do It's not enough just to run the race, but regularly, daily, it's good to look back and say, how did we do? Where did we succeed today, Lord? What victories can we celebrate of your good grace? Where did we sin? Where did I sin? Where did I fail? Where did I fail to depend upon you in the way that I should have? Now help me tomorrow to do better. That's a constant work of Edwards in the pursuit of holiness. And number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That's a good way to live. If I knew that if in the next 60 minutes I would be dead, how would I spend this hour of time? You see how ruthlessly he thought? How he chiseled his life into capturing moments and opportunities that doesn't mean we shouldn't take vacation or rest and recover yes we should do those things with purpose to the glory of god but be tenacious in the way that you live your life live it for all it's worth to his glory our response four things this morning there's so many things we can take away from this man's life as we seek to imitate him but here's four suggestions that i have for us number one Christian, worship God with your mind and your heart. Your heart. It's not enough to know the theology if your heart is cold. Do you realize that Satan probably has a more tuned theology than most Christians? But he is not a worshiper. It's dangerously possible to know all kinds of things about God up here and be dead in here. And so I would just say this. We should be a people who love theology, who dig deep in the Word. It's never an either-or. It's always a both-and. Our theology should land us on our knees in total worship and praise of a great God. Number two, we should live tenacious, with tenacious resolve and dependence. I love putting these things together, and I didn't have time to build out the level of dependence, the commitment to trust and prayer and dependence in Edward's life. He was keenly aware willpower alone was not enough. We have to trust. We have to depend. We we are weak. We have to lean on him. Yet, willpower is required. Tenacious resolve I will not compromise. I will not relent. I will persevere, Lord, in your strength. Help me. Help me run this race. All the way through the tape. Number three, pursue happiness through holiness. Don't ever think that these two are at odds. Young people especially, listen close. God's commitment to making you holy is his commitment to making you happy. That is the path of satisfaction and delight. Your obedience to him is the path of joy and pleasure. The Puritans are so looked down upon as just killjoys and rule people and legalists and stuffy. And I just think that assessment is over, uh, it's just completely uh, unfitting to their lives. These people saw the path of holiness as the path of happiness. And that's how they live. And so should we. Number four, seek to leave a legacy of faith to the glory of God that is worth imitating for those who are to come. You know, there is value in thinking about the legacy you're going to leave. I think sometimes people who want to build this legacy thing, they do so from a source of pride. They want recognition. So, you know, get a brick, get a building, whatever. I want my name on everything. That's not what we're after here. There is value in leaving a legacy, though, to the glory of God. To the glory of God. What will the people who follow our lead in generations to come, say, of our lives. The purpose with which we lived our days. The passion with which we worshiped God. The discipline we had in the work of holiness, in obedience, in evangelism, in prayer, in discipleship. On down the line. Work to leave a legacy of faith worth imitating. I'll tell you, as we researched down in in South Carolina and saw these places and went to these churches that my ancestors were pivotal in helping to start, my joy was overflowing in that I'm so proud to the glory of God of their faithfulness. And it inspired me, Lord, help me do the same so that when I'm long gone, there would be some maybe connected somewhere or another to my life that would say, I want to live like that. To the glory of God. May we be that kind of people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are building us day by day to be a temple, a dwelling of you for your glory, O oh Lord, and for our joy. I give praise to you for Jonathan Edwards, for his life, for the story, Lord, that you wrote in his life. I thank you for saving him. I thank you for setting upon him such incredible gifting. I thank you for giving him the strength to live with resolve in a day where there was so much challenge. Lord, I pray for each person in this room that we would be similar in our faith, in our race as we run, Lord. Strengthen us. Hold us up. Find us faithful, find us depending upon You with tenacious resolve to finish well. And Lord, to Your glory, may the the generations that follow our lead look and say, we praise You, O Lord, for their faithfulness and for the work that they accomplished. Father, bring to pass Your purpose in our lives for Your glory and, Lord, for our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.